This audio file is part of the Libri Ideas Library and podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family and colleagues, but we ask you to respect the copyright which belongs to Libri Fellowship. Please don't modify this file in any way or publish the material in any format. Also note that the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. And welcome all of you. It's so great to have you here. So lovely to see um, some very familiar faces and some new faces also. Um, let me just ask you a question as we start off. The title of this lecture is What is the Mark of the Christian? And the first question, I'm going to ask a lot of questions tonight. The first question is when we see these things, do we think Christian? Cross necklace, a tattoo of the cross, tattoo with some religious language, a fish, the dog collar, <laughs> an ecclesiastical representation of the church, Catholic or otherwise. A church building. What is it that makes a Christian distinctive in our culture from a non-Christian? I think we have to agree at the onset that Christian has become an almost meaningless term, stripped of most value. But I want to ask you, like really ask you, to help me brainstorm right now. Um, so I'm going to ask you to throw out um, some of you, the things that occur to you. What are some of the things that our culture would think of when they think of Christianity or of a Christian? Superstition. Superstition. Judgmental. Judgmental, yeah. Honesty. Honesty, yeah. Homophobia. Homophobia. Bigotry. Bigotry. Charitable. Charitable. Good. Conservative. Conservative. Hypocritical. Yep. Hypocritical. Yep. More? Well meaning. Well meaning. A bit dull. A, a bit dull. Yes. Yes. Strange. Strange. Churchgoer. Churchgoer, yes. Rule book. Rule book. This is helpful. What's that? Climate denier. Climate denier, absolutely. Yes? Old fashioned. Old fashioned, yes. When we think of the term Christian, or when people think of Christianity, dull. Dull, absolutely. Well, it's worth saying twice. Um, definitely. Um, there's a little book by Francis Schaeffer called The Mark of a Christian that I'm going to be basing this talk on very, very intensively and intentionally. Um, and the preface to this book, written by his publisher at the time, starts out with these words. Christians have not always presented a pretty picture to the world. Too often, they have failed to show the beauty of love the beauty of Christ, the holiness of God, and the world has turned away. 
Is there no way to make the world look again, this time at true Christianity? Must Christians continue to stand with arms folded, presenting to men and women a tarnished image of God, a shattered body of Christ? How should we show the world that we are Christians? So at the outset, I just want to say that this lecture is going to be mainly addressing those who are on the journey of following Christ. I hope that every person listening, whatever perspective you have, whatever background you come from, will be willing to engage with and listen to an insider's discussion. And I want to know what you see, what you have experienced, whether you consider yourself to be a part of the church or an onlooker. This is the book, this tiny, tiny book. You can see how small it is, but significant, I think. It was written in 1970, about 50 year, 15 years after the Schaefers started Libri in their home. Um, in Switzerland. And Schaefer starts right in um, with um, referring to the Bible and to this particular verse um, in John 13. The context being um, the Last Supper when Jesus um, was with his disciples. And he said these words to them, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Schaefer points out that what he says here is not a statement or a fact. It is a command. Love one another, which includes a condition. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love her. If this is involved, if you obey, you will wear the badge that Christ gave. This is the mark of the Christian, of a follower of Christ. Our love for one another. So now you can all go home. You can, you can take the book as you go, but hopefully we can unpack that a bit more. That isn't what Schaefer says the mark of the Christian is. That's what Jesus says the mark of the Christian is. If you have love one for another. The point, while it is possible to be a Christian without showing the mark, if we expect non-Christians to know that we are Christians, we must show the mark. We must love one another. Later in one of his letters, John wrote that he wrote in 1 John, actually he said, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So he's emphasizing, don't forget this, as Schaefer said, don't forget this. This mark was given to us by Christ while he was still on earth. This is to be your mark. So love each other as I love you. And he's speaking about loving those that are the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Christ, the fellows in the way. So love for our fellow Christians, but also love for our neighbor. 
We're to love our fellow human beings as God's creation, intrinsically beautiful, valuable, created in God's image. We're to love all men as neighbors and love them as we love ourselves. We're to love on the basis of creation, whether or not we're brothers or sisters in Christ. And we're to love our neighbor, Christian or non, even at a great cost. And Jesus explores this further. Um, a religious lawyer came to Jesus and he had a question for him. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This was a test. And Jesus asked him what is written in the law, which this law expert knew very well and it answered correctly. You shall love the Lord your God, he said, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The Jesus story that most of us know very well. But let's listen again. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, another religious leader, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, this wounded man lying on the side of the road, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then asked the religious lawyer, Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The hearer of this story can ask themselves many questions. Who is my neighbor? Who would I walk past? Whom would I stop for? But the point is, Observable, generous, other-centered love and neighborliness is what we are called to. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. If we listen deeply to this story, barriers must fall down. We see our neighbor as someone we meet, someone we come into contact with, someone whom we must respond to, not asking questions, about our neighbor's worthiness, questions about race, 
questions about religion, questions about his social standing, about desirability, we see a fellow human being in need with love, with compassion, we see our neighbors. And if we are honest, we are often the retreating head. And we often see heads retreating. Schaefer then continues to explore this question of who are we to love? And he talks about two humanities. Some men and women made in the image of God still stand in rebellion against him. And some, by the grace of God, have cast themselves upon God's solution. But all too often, Schaefer points out, in emphasizing these two humanities, those who stand in rebellion and those who have turned to God for his solution, um, in emphasizing these two humanities, Bible-believing Christians have erred into an ugliness and a tribalism and a sense of us-them which destroys our ability to see the other as someone we are called to love and to care for. He continues to stress that, these two human that there are two humanities, and yet, indeed, in a more important sense, there's only one humanity, all men and women derived from one origin, by creation all bearing the image of God. In this sense, all people are one flesh and one blood, the unity of all men and women. Paul's letters often reference this double obligation that we have. In Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul writes, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So all and especially. And then also in the 1 Thessalonians, he writes, May your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else the same double emphasis. This dual goal should be our Christian mentality, the set of our minds. We should be consciously thinking about it and what it means in our moment-at-a-time lives. It should be the attitude that, gav that, that governs our outward observable actions. Here we have something that I find personally particularly challenging. With the many failures and disappointments and the sins of my fellow believers, it is sometimes the most difficult thing for me to love other Christians. The biblical call is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ has loved us and laid down his life for us. Schaefer does want to make a distinction between true believers and pretenders. And in that making a distinction, he wants to be sure that we don't leave out um, from the family of believers any who should really be considered our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a lot of that in Christianity, us, them. Um, so he says that we must include everyone who stands in the historical biblical faith, whether or not he or she is a member of our own party and our own, or our own group. 
if we are called to love our unbelieving neighbor, how much more? And Schaefer, in his very great enthusiasm, says 10,000 times more. How much more should we showcase beauty in the relationships between true Bible-believing Christians, something that is so beautiful that the world can be brought short, be brought to attention, can be amazed at what it sees. So we have asked the question, who are we to love? Both those who are believers and those who are not, brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbor. And then we ask the question, what quality of love? We go back to John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. Of course, this is a huge ask as we think about the quality of Christ's love for us. <coughs> Our imaginations fail us, even as we try to grasp what it really means to us, to our identity, to our inner being, to be loved by Christ. But that love, immense and personal, sacrificial, that love is how we are to love each other, how I am to love my brother and sister in Christ. This is to be our standard. As Schaefer says with passion, we dare have no lesser standard. However, one of two things can happen. We can claim to get it, love, love each other. We can claim to get it, to fly our flag, singing out that we love all Christians, put on our Sunday loving face mask, and then retreat. Schaefer says this can either be exceedingly ugly, as ugly as anyone can imagine, or this love can be something as profound as anyone could imagine. If it is to be love, like the love that we have experienced from Jesus Christ, then seeking to love one another will take a great deal of time, a great deal of practice, a great deal of honesty, of thinking and praying together, brainstorming, of asking on our knees for God's help. It's a profound calling and one we're not going to get right all of the time, but the stakes are high. So then we're going to think about a loving church in a dying culture. Schaefer says, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Jesus says, by this should all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the midst of the world and in the midst of the present culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Did you hear that? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Upon his authority, he is giving the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians, whether you and I truly have believed in his name on the basis of our observable love for our fellow Christians. 
That's pretty frightening. Jesus turns to the world and he says, I've got something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love that they show to all true Christians. If you come up to us and cast in our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we have not shown love to other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative that Christ has given to them. And Schaefer says, we must not get angry. If people say you don't love other Christians, our response must be to go home, get down on our knees, and ask God whether, we whether or not what they say is true. And if it is, then they have a right to say it. That's humbling, sobering, even chilling. What a huge calling. And we have failure in love, don't we? We may be true Christians and yet fail in our love towards other Christians. As a matter of fact, to be completely realistic, it is much stronger than this. There will be times, Schaefer says, and let us say it with tears, there will be times when we will fail in our love towards each other as Christians. It's sobering but it's true to life. It's happened in my life. It will happen in yours. I have failed, and I have been failed by fellow Christians. It messes us up, doesn't it? Our relationships with each other, with God and before the watching world. In a fallen world, we can know that we will fail each other and fail our Father in heaven. This is reality. We must ask God's forgiveness when it comes. This is a day-to-day, moment-by-moment possibility of failing and seeking forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once and for all, and over and over, day-to-day, as we fail to live up to the standard that we hold up for ourselves and certainly the standard that God holds for us and the world watching holds for us as we fail to love perfectly. No one except Christ himself has ever lived and not failed. In John 13... 35, the verse that we are looking at. Um, this is not saying that our failure to love our fellow Christians means that we are not his followers. If we fail to love each other, it doesn't mean that we aren't his followers. Our salvation is secure, so secure, if we have claimed his once and for all sacrifice for us and his offer of grace and forgiveness based solely on Christ's death for us what Schaefer calls the finished work of Christ, which we place ourselves under. Our position is secure. If success in love 
towards our brothers and sisters in Christ were to be the standard of whether, one, whether or not one is a Christian, then there would be no Christians because all people have failed. That's what Schaefer says, and it is true. But Jesus does give the world a piece of litmus paper, a reasonable thermometer. This is the mark of the Christian, of our love for each other. And when the watching world, our neighbor, our friend, our family, do not see this being lived out in reality in our day-to-day -day lives, they may conclude, rightly or wrongly, that this person is not a Christian. But it gets worse. The final apologetic. We're going to look at the high priestly prayer. Let me see if I have it. I don't have it here. The final apologetic. We're, for looking at that, we're going to turn to John 17 and look at just what happened later that night. That Jesus, So Jesus, the, the John 13 that we've been thinking about was when Jesus was right before he washed his disciples, right after he washed his disciples' feet. Um, and then he goes to the garden and he prays um, right before he's arrested. And this is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they all may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So that's the context. Then listen to this. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Schaefer is quick to clarify that Jesus is not praying for an idealistic, humanistic, romantic oneness amongst humanity in general, but he is praying for a profound oneness to be found in God himself and amongst Christians who are truly living out their calling as children of God. But the sobering part is, if we as Christians don't cringe, it seems to me we are not very sensitive or honest because Jesus gives us the follow, following final apologetic. Then the world will know that you sent me. Here we have something even more profound than that as our love is observable, people have the right to question whether we are indeed Christ's followers based on the quality of that love. Jesus is saying that we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are even true, that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Let me just read that last bit again. I'm sorry I don't have it up here. I in them and you in me, Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. 
we should be feeling a clutch in our hearts as we look at our own relationships with fellow Christians, as we look at how Christians are perceived in our culture. How do we know that we are Christians? We know this not because of how we feel about God at any given time. We can know that we are Christians on our doctrine. The church also has the right to judge, to discern whether someone is a Christian based on the content of what they believe and what they teach. The world can't be expected to judge in this way because the watching world doesn't know or, or care about our doctrine, whether we believe truly what we claim to be true. But the mark Jesus gave for his followers to wear is one that should arrest the attention of our non-Christian neighbors. It should awaken the longing of every onlooker because Christian or atheist, agnostic, or people with no particular claim to religion, the nuns, part of, I believe, being created in the image of God is that we are created for relationship and we have a finely tuned radar for love. Schaefer says, because every man is made in the image of God and has therefore aspiration of love, there is something that can be in every geographical climate, in every point of time, which cannot fail to arrest his attention. And that is the love that Christians have for one another and not just for their own party. And by this, the world can know that Christ was sent by God and that Christ loves us even as he loves the mem as the members of the Trinity love and care for each other. This is very important and also very hard. So <clears throat> one of the things that's important in this, um, <clears throat> as we think about how we're to live this out, this calling that we have that is, is so big and so much rests on it, and we're so small and so inadequate to the call, um, we need to explore ways in which we can live that out in a way that is authentic and real. And one of those ways is just to be honest with those that are around us and to love to the best of our ability. One of my dear friends, Larry Snyder, came to the Swiss Libreed back in the 60s, it would have been. He was young, he was a vegetarian, he was a hippie, he was on a motorbike, lots of checks for the, the 60s and 70s. Um, he was in Germany, he says, and he, told, he heard about a place there from a friend that served good vegetarian food and was in a beautiful spot in the Alps, so he decided to visit. Um, he was running late. He had called ahead and he was running late, very late indeed, and didn't come in until, I guess, after 11. And Reynolds and Susan were there. They're the ones that started this branch um, more than 50 years ago now. They were there and they sat up with him, welcomed him, drank tea with him, gave him biscuits. And the next day when he found out that it was a Christian study center, and that all the hosts were Christians, he couldn't leave. 
He would never have stayed, he said. He would never have come in the first place if he had known that there were Christians here. But he saw love in action, and he received care. And he met Schaefer in the next coming days, and he describes how Schaefer listened so carefully to him and asked good questions, was intensely curious about Larry, wanted to know how he saw the world. He had never been listened to like that. And when the time came for him to listen to what Schaefer had to give to him in response to his existential questions, which were real questions, deep questions, Larry ended up becoming a Christian and working with Labrie for the next 50-some years. Larry was one of my first encounters with Labrie workers, and that is what sums up Larry the most to me. His experience with Schaefer was my experience with him. Deeply hospitable, able to talk to anyone about anything because of an other-centeredness that so deeply valued the person across from him that he cared enough to listen and that he cared enough to respond, to engage. And there was a courage that Larry had as well to speak the truth, even difficult truth. That was never lacking, but it was couched in such incredible care and compassion. There is a real need for apologetics, for being able to give sound answers to real questions, to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. But it must go hand in hand with a love that crosses all lines, which so often divide people from each other. If the world does not see this down-to-earth, practical love, it will not believe Christ was sent by the Father. People will not believe only on the basis of proper answers. The two should not be placed in antithesis. The world must have proper answers to their honest questions. But at the same time, there must be a oneness in love between all true Christians. This is what is needed, Schaefer writes if men are to know that Jesus was sent by the Father and that Christianity is true. So what is this unity and oneness that we are being called to? There's a few things that I thought of that it is not. Maybe you can think of more. Um, it's not just organizational unity, although organizational unity is important. It's not ecclesiastical oneness. There can be great organizational unity without any oneness at all. And there can be real diversity in denominations, in understandings, in beliefs, in backgrounds, in emphases that are not central to the biblical teaching and therefore don't need to divide us. It's also not just a, the mystical union of the church. True oneness is trying to hold two things as equally true and to live out the demonstration of that. The Christian 
Schaefer writes, really has a double task. He is to practice both God's holiness and his love. The Christian is to exhibit that God exists as an infinite personal God. And then he is to exhibit simultaneously God's character of holiness and love. Not, Schaefer says, his holiness without his love. This is only harshness. Not his love without his holiness. This is only compromise. Anything that an individual Christian or Christian group does that fails to show the simultaneous balance of the holiness of God and the love of God presents to a watching world not a demonstration of the God who exists, but a caricature of the God who exists. This is not to be something we mention in passing. This is to be something, a tension that we live in every day especially when it comes to the organized church. So another question, what then is this love and how can it be made visible? How can it be made visible? First, it means a very simple thing, Schaefer says. It means, this is how to make it visible. It means that when I have made a mistake, when I have failed my Christian brother or sister, I go to them and I say, I'm sorry. This is first. What is your experience of having been wronged by fellow Christians and with having done the wrong thing, with having been hurtful? Is it easy to apologize? to ask for forgiveness? If you think it is easy, and I wasn't looking out there so I didn't see any heads going like this. If you think it's easy, I would be confident to posit that you have not yet experienced what it is to wrong someone and have to confess and ask forgiveness without excuse. It is never easy. But this is the way of renewed relationship, renewed fellowship, Amongst all of our relationships, family, friends, neighbors, brothers and sisters in Christ, groups that we're a part of, our churches. Timothy Keller wrote an excellent book on forgiveness that I highly recommend, although I haven't read it all, but I still can highly recommend it. Um, <clears throat> he, he wrote this about repentance. True repentance begins where whitewashing, nothing really happened, and blame shifting, it wasn't really my fault, and self-pity, I'm sorry because of what it has cost me, and self-flagulation, I will feel so terrible that nobody will be able to criticize me, end. So true repentance begins where these things end. Schaefer says, if I'm not willing to say I'm sorry when I have wronged somebody, especially when I have not loved that person, I have not even started to think about the meaning of a Christian oneness that the world can see. The world has the right to question whether I am a Christian. And more than that, let me say it again, he says, 
If I am not willing to do this very simple thing, the world has the right to question whether Jesus was sent from God and whether Christianity is true. But there is more. Though it is hard to gulp down our pride and pluck up our courage and say that we are sorry, it is even harder to forgive. But we cannot fail to forgive and then sit and read the Bible comfortably with a clear conscience. The Bible is clear that the world must observe a forgiving spirit in the midst of God's people. Our society cannot live without forgiveness. We are forgiveness starved. But forgiveness raises all sorts of red flags, doesn't it? And for good reason. Horrible wrongs must not be allowed to be swept under the carpet in the name of love. Schaefer is very real about the difficulty of forgiveness in one of his sermons. He says, our question is, how will we not be utterly squashed like a bug on a rock if we live a life of forgiveness? How dare I have a forgiving heart in a world of dog-eat-dog? Dog? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever wondered? If I keep asking forgiveness, am I not just going to get walked all over? We must remember what forgiveness isn't. It isn't making excuses. It isn't belittling the wrong. It isn't pretending that the wrong that has been done will not have consequences. It isn't masking the wounding. In the Bible, the Greek word translated forgiveness literally means to let go, to release, as when a person doesn't demand a payment for a debt. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The reason that we dare to live this way, pursuing the practice of forgiveness, is that there is a loving Heavenly Father who has drawn you to Himself and forgiven you once and for all in time and space and history. He has called you His beloved. If you are a Christian, you are living in the midst of His environment, and you dare to live in this way asking for his help in forgiving those who have wronged you, even as we ask his forgiveness in the moment-by-moment -moment need that we have to be forgiven. As Christians, all too often, we live in a way that denies his existence and his goodness, his fatherly love. We are actually slow to forgive, cautious in our love, because we see the wreckage and we feel the fear the vulnerability of loving and forgiving. In this, we are called to a hard task of trusting God to be both just and merciful. Trust Him as we let go of our right to stand in judgment, as we release someone from the guilt and debt that they have caused against us, as we let go of the right to harbor bitterness, resentment, as we forgive, as we release. No matter what the world pays you back, God is going to pay you back in love and kindness and care and all his fatherliness towards us. It's a horrible, fallen world, so broken, but our loving Father is here.
C.S. Lewis has an essay called On Forgiveness. And in it, he writes this. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, although I think that is very hard. But to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, and this is his, these are his examples. You can come up with your own. To forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. One thing that the Schaefers both talked about, Edith and Francis, a lot was substantial healing. And I love this phrase. I have found it to be uh, very hopeful for me. Um, substantial healing. Uh, just to unpack it a little bit, substantial as in real, actual, with substance, substantial healing. Patterns of relating significantly changed. Hurts that divide no longer raw. Steps towards regaining trust, substantial healing. But also substantial as in full of substance, but not complete. Full of substance, but not yet complete. So true, but not full healing of relationships. This is what we can hope for. Significant change, but not perfection. Healing from deep wounding, but not without scars. This is wonderful and full of hope. We as individuals should seek to pursue and exhibit substantial healing in our broken, messy relationships asking for forgiveness, confessing how we have sinned against each other and failed each other. So when the world looks at us, do they see people who are living out what it means to love one another by being willing to say we're sorry, by pursuing a forgiving heart, by seeking substantial healing in our relationships? None of us will do this perfectly, but it must be real enough for the world to be able to observe it. If the world does not observe this among true Christians, the world has a right to make the two awful judgments which these verses indicate, that we are not Christians and that Christ was not sent by the Father. So what is this love and how can it be made visible? We've talked about living humbly with each other confessing our sins, saying I'm sorry, seeking forgiveness, pursuing substantial healing in our relationships. But what happens when, as we seek to live out our calling to demonstrate God's holiness and also his love, what happens when we disagree? This really should be another lecture or series of lectures. There's so much to explore.
there's a helpful example in a letter to the Corinthians that was written in about 54 AD by Paul. Paul writes that there is sexual immorality amongst you of a kind that is not even by amongst the pagans. He calls them out on it. And he calls for mourning and for church discipline because of the need to exhibit the holiness of God in a visible church and for the goal of bringing the offender to a place of repentance and transformation. That's in 1 Corinthians, about 54. In about 55 AD, Paul wrote another letter to the same congregation. He speaks of how he wrote his previous letter, calling the church to a purity and to a holiness that they were not exhibiting at the time. He says this, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. But then he chides church for not bringing that disciplined brother back into fellowship. This is what he says. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Schaefer in this book expresses thankfulness that from our perspective, we can see the passage of time and holiness and love going hand in hand while dealing with sin in our midst. We should never come to such differences without regret and without tears. Schaefer says that there is only one person who can fight the Lord's battles in anywhere near a proper way, and that is by nature, that is a person who by nature is unbelligerent. A belligerent man tends to do it because he's belligerent, at least it looks that way. The world must observe that when we must differ with each other as two true Christians, and sometimes we must, we do it not because we love the smell of blood, the smell of the arena, the smell of the bullfight, but because we must for God's sake. If there are tears when we speak, then something beautiful can be observed. So the question being when Christians disagree, we should do it with regret and with tears, with pause, not hungry for a fight, weighing our words carefully. Sometimes the things that we disagree on are small and seem minor to us, or at least to some of us. Usually in the midst of these differences, communication remains open and small difference. It remains open and love is fairly easy to show. Other times, the differences we share are mammoth. Schaefer says, but where the difference becomes really important, it becomes proportionately more important to speak for God's holiness. And it becomes increasingly important in that place to show the world that we still love each other and hard though it may be, to consciously choose towards loving our brothers and sisters. Essential in this, essential is to be on our knees, asking for the Holy Spirit to be with us, to be at work in our midst, pleading with the Lord that 
he would do his work in the very midst of our differences, at the heart of those things that are seeming to divide us. Rather than a feel-good, squishy kind of love, <laughs> the love we are called to is one which is often costly. There will be more on that later. This costly love, something that is going to be weighty for us, something difficult. Often we have to give up something in order to have true peace. Um, with someone else. It can't be something that is about God's holiness, but it, sometimes it can be things to do with our own personal finances, maybe never being able to quite fully prove that we were right. These things are hard, but sometimes in the name of love, it's important to count the cost and be willing to accept it in pursuing a solution. Also, in pursuing a solution, we don't, should not just want to be proved right, but we should be looking together for something that will bring us together. In that, there needs to be a charitable handling of our differences. How can we Pursue a unity that transcends the differences we will inevitably have. Here's just a few ideas of how we can maybe pursue that unity. I'd love to hear from you some of your experiences, maybe some of your um, ideas. Peter and I were brainstorming, and here's three he came up with. See what you think. Perhaps by pursuing a true respect and understanding, by being able to clearly speak of their position and be able to give a respectful summary of their position such that anyone holding that position would be satisfied and pleased with our ability to understand their perspective to represent another's point of view as charitably as possible. Perhaps by speaking clearly and frequently of our love and respect for each other in the midst of our differences, naming it, celebrating it, marking it, and being able to have difference. Perhaps by speaking of how we are looking forward to, in the future, feasting together, at the Lamb's table, being brought together in true ultimate unity. Schaefer speaks of our differences as potentially being a golden opportunity. When everything is going well and we are standing in a nice little circle in our churches, there is not much to be observed. But the church, but the world watches when it sniffs potential controversy. When we come to a place, Schaefer writes, where there is a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something that they can use to judge that these really are Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. 
There's a small, a couple of small stories at the end of the book um, that Schaefer tells. And I truly, really considered having him tell them in his own words, in his own voice. But maybe you can listen to the lecture. I don't think I'm quite brave enough um, because his, it, is, it is an old recording. Let me read. It's three paragraphs on, on um, one page, basically. He writes, Let me give a beautiful example of observable love. This happened amongst the Brethren group in Germany immediately after the last war. In order to control the church, Hitler commanded the union of all religious groups in Germany, drawing them together by law. The Brethren divided over this issue. Half accepted Hitler's dictum and half refused. The ones who submitted, of course, had a much easier time. But gradually, in this organizational oneness with liberal groups, their own sharpness and spiritual life wavered. On the other hand, the group that stayed out remained spiritually virile, but there was hardly a family in which someone did not die in a German concentration camp. Now can you imagine, he writes, the emotional tension. The war is over and these brothers face each other again. They had the same doctrine and they had worked together for more than a generation. Now what is going to happen? The one man remembers that his father died in a concentration camp and knows that these people over here remain safe. But people on the other side have deep personal feelings as well. Then gradually, these brothers came to know that this situation would not do. He was friends. Schaefer was friends with one of these guys, and he told him, there was a time appointed when the other two groups could meet together in a certain quiet place. I asked the man who told me this, what did you do? And he said, well, I'll tell you what we did. We came together and we set aside several days in which each man would search his own heart. Here was real difference. Emotions were deeply, deeply stirred. My father has gone to the concentration camp, or had gone to the concentration camp. My mother was dragged away. These things are not just little pebbles in the beach. They reach into the deep wellsprings of human emotion. But these people understood the command of Christ at this place. And for several days, every man did nothing except search his own heart concerning his own failures and the commands of Christ. And then they met together. I asked the man, what happened then? And he said, we just were one. To my mind, says Schaefer, this is exactly what Jesus speaks about. The Father has sent his Son. Schaefer ends the book with a poem, with a lament. And when we look at the world around us and we consider our own broken hearts, as we consider the wounded and the victims, those who have been hurt by fellow Christians, and sometimes by those who are meant to be the under-shepherds of Christ, but who have utterly failed, 
A right response is tears, lament, crying out to the Lord for his help, for his healing, for his redemption. He hears our call, the call of the hurt and the wounded, the call of the penitent wounder. This next slide was the hardest slide of all of them for me to put together. This is our world. This is what's in the news. What breaks our hearts? What causes many people, understandably, rightly, it's their right to turn away. This is a poem by Evangeline Patterson, who's from Ireland and was born in 1928, died in 2000. It's called Lament. Weep, weep for those who do the work of the Lord with a high look and a proud heart. Their voice is lifted up in the streets and their cry is heard. The bruised reed they break by their great strength and the smoking flask they trample. Weep not for the quenched, for their God will hear their cry and the Lord will come to save them. But weep, weep for the quenchers. For when the day of the Lord is come and the veils sing and the hills clap their hands and the light shines, then their eyes will be opened on a way place, smoldering, the smoke of the flask bitter in their nostrils, their feet pierced by broken reed stems, wood, hay, and stubble, and no grass springing, and all the birds flown. Weep, weep for those who have made a desert in the name of the Lord. That's where he ends his book, but I don't quite want to leave it there for understandable reasons. <laughs> a book you can put down and have a little cry in private, but um, I want to just end with just a little bit of, of something that I think is, is part of our hope. We have about our calling to be people of love and forgiveness. Just a couple more minutes, guys, you've been great. Um, this is our passage that we've been looking at, John 13. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, having, um, to his father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, washed his disciples' feet and then went to the cross for them. Costly love. On the brink of his journey to death on the cross, ultimate sacrifice. 
But here, the washing of disciples' feet, humility, the people he loved, loving to the end, loving those whom he knew would betray him, deny him, abandon him, let him down, calling us to forgive when we have been forgiven. How? Because like Jesus, we have been given the security of knowing where we have come from and where we are going. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things to his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose. Like him, our security rests in the fact that before we are brothers and sisters together, we are children of a loving Heavenly Father who is not absent, who is not distant, but who is with us. How? Because our hope is that this world is not the end. In Colossians, it says, We always thank God for you when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith and of your love that you have for all the saints, this faith and this love that you have because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. This is from Colossians. Paul is so realistic in Colossians, guys. He is so realistic that being part of a family together means bearing with each other, forgiving each other, being wronged and having to release that that we hold against each other. And we can do this in light of the hope that we have that is laid up for us in heaven. So I'll conclude with Schaefer's words. I'll give him the final word. I promise the last two paragraphs. What then shall we conclude but that as the Samaritan loved the wounded man, we as Christians are called upon to love all neighbors, all men as neighbors, loving them as ourselves. Secondly, we are to love all true Christian brothers and sisters in a way that the world may observe. This means showing love to our brothers and sisters in the midst of our differences, great or small, loving each other when it costs us something. Loving them even under the times of tremendous emotional tension. Loving them in a way that the world can see. In short, we are to practice and exhibit the holiness of God and the love of God. For without this, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. So there you go, the mark of the Christian. That's what I have for you. Let's discuss this together. There's so much I want to hear from you. If you want to Let's start by turning to each other for about yeah, for two minutes and just uh, talk amongst yourselves about things that stood out or questions that you have from what's on.
And uh, it would be, be really good to hear some of the, the questions that, mm. that you're having after this talk. Um, I'll just take the privilege to start us off just by, yes. first of all, saying thank you, Don. And I think mm. this is just such an important topic and so important to talk about. It's mm. like I was kind of struck by it as you were going, you know, in one sense, it's like all of the the scripture, uh, the, the verses that you've quoted, they're very mm. central. And yes, we, so familiar. Yeah, they're familiar, and, and, and you hear them a lot if you're, if you're in church, yeah. but I think just kind of having it laid out mm. um, tonight, that actually this is uh, saying, mm. uh, calling us to love one another, and, and what, what does it mean? I think it's just wonderful that, that you bring it up uh, mm. tonight, and that we can really talk about it. And um, my, my question that I wanted to start us off with is, um, so yeah, when, when you're talking about Jesus in, in John 17, when, when he was praying for the church and praying for the oneness, mm. and then he said that shapers, um, set, I think shapers, <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> Jesus knows that this, this isn't just an idealist. Uh, idealistic mm. or like utopian ideal that yeah. he's putting out there, but that this is actually a, a pr profound reality in the midst of a confused and divided world um, right. that he still calls and, and prays for the church to be one. Mm. And I just kind of was thinking even more about like the, the practical implications of as Christians um, meeting with and dealing with Christians from other churches or denominations, yeah. how can we be like even kind of proactively seeking unity? Mm. And I just heard a suggestion, someone uh, we were discussing at some point said that th it should be a rule for all Christians if they're going to write on, uh, if there's like a theological debate in the newspapers or on social media, there should be a rule that if a Christian is going to write about a, another Christian denomination mm. than, than herself, they must start with two things mm -hmm. that they deeply admire and appreciate with that other denomination before they get to the one point that yeah. they kind of want to want to challenge. And I thought it was like an interesting practical. So yes. I just wondered if you have more thoughts on like kind of the proactive, how can we seek unity mm -hmm. even yeah. before there's conflict, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good um, question and such a, a great example of an answer of trying to build together an answer. I'd love to hear. Uh, I feel like in this, you guys, I have read a great book and I have about 50 years of experience in the church, but I have so much to learn and so much to grow. And um, we can learn from each other and we need each other. We need help. And we need support. We need to listen to voices from all different perspectives. Um, so I, I kind of feel like this discussion is going to be as much me listening and learning as it is you asking me questions. But I will attempt to, to think about and, um, and hopefully open it up to, to, to other thoughts. Um, I, I think, well, Peter and I were talking about this earlier and just trying to brainstorm some of these ways and one of the ways is by being, I think, really realistic 
that when I am with a brother or sister in Christ, there is at some point, if we are close in relationship with each other, there is at some point going to be conflict because that's real, that's human. And being a part of a church, um, you have been incredibly blessed if the ch your church experience has been one of um, smooth sailing. But I am sad that that hasn't been my experience oftentimes. And that there is, um, there is a lot to process when there is that sort of the tensions, the disagreements, the differences, the divides, the pain that comes with that. And I think in one way, and this is getting to that, preparing ourselves for that, talking about it, acknowledging that it can happen, that it does happen, that it will happen, that it, that it shouldn't happen, that it's, it's the thing we want to prevent. Um, that goes a long ways towards being able to deal with it on a, on a more localized level, relationally. Um, Schaefer said, and I'm not sure if this would be true to your experience, um, in one of his sermons that I was listening to, so it's another book, but he said, why aren't we teaching about this in our churches, how to deal with the conflict, how to disagree with each other. We should be having conferences about this. We should be thinking about it, talking about it, pursuing it on, um, on a variety of levels. And I think, I mean, I'd love to hear from you. There's some podcasts that I've been listening to recently that have been really helping me to process some of this. People who are willing to talk about it, willing to think about it. That's, something I would throw out. Mm -hmm. Do you have any yeah, further yeah. thoughts? Any, any, any of the podcasts you want to recommend? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I do love, um, who, who is it? Justin Briley? Yeah. He, he, he does some great interviews with, and, and having people sit together who have very different perspectives and are both usually within the church, or maybe sometimes it will be people that, that are, are, um, have different perspectives, one from within Christianity and one who has a different persuasion. But he, he, his, a lot of his podcasts are really excellent in drawing people together and having these conversations that are difficult. There's one in particular that's about the Ravi Zacharias um, situation that happened, and he called in someone named Diane Landberg. I highly recommend her writings if you are wounded by your church experience, if you've had um, questions <coughs> about power and authority in the church. Um, Diane Lamberg would be a great person to turn to, and she's someone who came in to the Ravi Zacharias um, uh, scandal, that situation, worked within the organization and was talking about it, and he has a panel of about five people. I recommend that. I recommend preparing yourself, thinking about these things, not just turning a blind eye and thinking, I hope no one else notices what was in the paper this week. Um, also, um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is really, really amazing and great. Um, because in looking at, it's, it's American, and it's about this particular church leader in America. Some of you guys might not have ever even heard of this guy, but what's really helpful is that this podcast, the series of more than 13 um, episodes, 
is exploring not just what happened, but why did it happen? What, what responsibility does the rest of the church have towards those that we put into positions of leadership? And then when they fall, why do we want to point the finger? And to what degree do we also need to own and accept responsibility? responsibility? So that's what I also would recommend. Peter. Ah, thank you. A huge gaping hole, gaping hole in this lecture. Yes, you are right. Love your enemies. Oh, yes. Yes, so Peter's first question. I dread to think what your second one is going to point out. No. Um, your first question is just um, highlighting that I, I was speaking about love your fellow believers, the, the love your, um, your fellow Christians, and then also love those who are your neighbors. But what about love your enemies? And that is also very much something that Jesus spoke about and something that we are called to. And I must say, sometimes... It feels to me like my fellow Christians are my enemies. In some situations, in some, um, in some settings, I feel such tension and discord that, that it feels like anyone can be my enemy, not just the baddie, um, the typical sort of baddie, but surely, somebody quite close to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think we have to think about in that the same, um, the same love needs to be shown that we're talking about as to our fellow Christians and as to our neighbor, the other-centered, um, compassionate, caring, being willing to listen, being willing to understand that there are different perspectives. Um, it's very difficult to love someone who is in the wrong. There's a book called Bold Love, and I really love some of the chapters in this book. Just the chapters get me. There's loving um, the sinner, loving the fool, loving the, you know, loving your enemies, these different things. And I think they're all important things for us to be thinking about. Do you want to say something more about that, Peter? Or do you want to? I mean, we've all been reading terrible news this last week. Mm-hmm. What's happening in Israel? Oh, yeah. It must be terrible. Well, no one's protecting scripturally. Absolutely. For either side, because it gives lots of. Absolutely. Yes. Devastating. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. What is that? What does that mean? Love your enemy, do good to those who hate you. So hard, so hard. 
And we need to agonize together as Christians in these things. We need to weep together and um, do our best to do what we know to be the, the, the right thing. And then there's going to be some things that it's so complicated that we don't even know what's the right thing. It's so hard to, to, from our perspective, from our position, it's so hard to know, to make that call. And it, the call is not even ours to make. Anyone else want to chip in? Steve? Stephen? Yes. I just think of what you said about yearning together in the church and yearning to make sure to make sure of genuine differences. Yes. Yeah, so Steve is asking about conflict and th- that it often feels like a bad thing, maybe even an unhealthy thing. Um, but in what way can we think about that together? Um, I will recommend a, a lecture by Marsh that he gave. Was it a couple of years ago, Marsh? Um, on conflict? Uh, probably, yeah. yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's very important to think about it and to talk about it. And that. That's right. Under the carpet or under the cross by Marsh Moyle who, by the way, is launching his book next week. <laughs> You're welcome, Marsh. <laughs> um, I, I think with, with conflict, um, it is something that certain personalities, and most people anyway, tend to shy away from. But I think it's often dishonest to avoid conflict that often that is a very unloving thing. If there is difference, if there is wrong that has happened, if there is something that needs to be said, and we're too afraid to say it because of the conflict that might come from that, um, I think it's actually the cowardly thing, the um, unloving thing, the unfaithful thing to avoid conflict. Um, It's very scary to contemplate conflict, but um, I have to say the deepest healing that I've often experienced in my life has come through facing conflict and passing through it, um, particularly with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, The honesty that comes from that, the importance of being able to be humble together and to really practice some of these things that Schaefer is talking about. Practice listening. Practice being able to um, imaginatively put myself in another person's shoes and see how they have experienced my actions, my words. Um, So in Marsha's title, Under the Cross, that's, um, that's very important because I think 
um, the, the most healthy kind of conflict can happen when there's also an awareness and a humility that comes from knowing that God ultimately knows me and he ultimately knows this other person or this other group and that we can trust him with the results even if the results of having been brave enough to face up to the conflict even if they don't go the way that I longed for them to go and I face disappointment. He did. Nest of vipers. Yes. Sepulchres, and, you know, and that's why they, in the immediate um, circumstances, planned that prophets to crucify him, you know, or do him yeah. away. Um, so I think if we're going to be imitators of Christ, I would say that's the mark I, I look at it in, in its full imitation, you know, as Christian, uh, we can interpret that. Um, I think we do need to have some conflict. Mm. I, I, I think there are two things. Yes, it'll be difficult to sum up. It'll be difficult to sum up. Yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. I think, I think. well, let, let, you can help me see if I'm summing it up properly for the <laughs> recording. Um, but I think you were wanting to, um, to make a distinction that there's not just a singular mark of a Christian, but marks of Christians. And that actually the, the sort of lumping together of like all religious people, it was with the fellow religious leaders at the time that Jesus had the most conflict, really. The, he called them the brood of vipers and things like that. And then you were wanting to, I think, go on and say that conflict is something that is not something to be shied away from, but is something that is actually 
important and sometimes difference is, is something that, were you saying that difference is something that just happens or something that, that difference is, I, I felt that at the end you were saying something that I, to probably your disappointment, quite agreed with. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we try and find, yes, we need to, we need the church, the yes. body of Christ, literally, that's yeah. what we're not a building, the body of Christ, and uh, I know my wife at the moment, you know, she has trouble with organised religion, I said, darling, try this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there we go, we can argue about that, and um, yeah, because she's, you know, she's, she's um, had problems, Yeah. and she fitted in, and then she didn't fit in, and uh, you know, Mm. She's a psychologist, so I won't mm. say more. But yeah. you know, she does understand people. And, yeah. um, I sympathise with her. Yes. But um, so, and we're knit in the womb as different people, and God made us differently. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are what what as a I'm just a surveyor, as a qua philosopher, I would look for um, a universal. We have a mm -hmm. universal God, so mm -hmm. universal truths. But within that, there's a lot of difference, and we can seek God in our own way, and hopefully meet with the, the fruit yeah. of the cactus tree. That's that's my mission, if you like. So we have to have that, because we're coming from a different point of view, and actually we can enrich the church, but I've seen too mm. many churches that people just don't fit. Yes. Um, I think that you, what you're raising is the, yeah. yes, the things that unite us and the things, the times that we don't fit within a, a certain congregation within a certain yes. church and the the sense of alienation also that comes with that at least I would often feel that these are, these are supposed to be my people but they're not they don't feel like my people and there should be an embracing of diversity and that seems to be what the Bible is talking about I very much resonate with that and agree with that um, I think that perhaps one of the things that would be important to bring into this part of the conversation while embracing and recognizing that actually it's often fellow Christians that we most need to call to a higher standard um, and also recognizing that within the, the church there should be diversity. Um, there also needs to be an upholding of both the holiness of God and the love of God. And somehow that conversation has to be going on in the midst of our differences and in the midst of the things that make us distinct because distinctions should be beautiful and diversity. The fact that I look and act and resonate with a certain way, with a certain thing, and that's different from you, that's richness. And that should be richness within the Christian church. But all underneath the umbrella of it must come within God's standards of holiness and his standards of love. Because like we talked about, a cheap love, of a, a, a love that isn't actually real in, in going deep, but just sort of a surface love, that doesn't last. That's just feel good. Um, and, in, and also, um, things that we say that we share and hold if we don't understand truly what we're saying and if that doesn't match with what the Bible is saying, that also will be a commonality that will not have a foundation that we can actually build something upon, which that something that we should build on the foundation shouldn't be narrow. It should be the foundation itself that God has given us is, is broad. It is his truth and we can build on his truth. And many times 
in ways that are more diverse than our current fellow believers often think. Marius, you had a question. Right, high church and Pentecostal. This is a, a Norwegian speaking. Mm -hmm. So he does both, yes. Yes. Great question, Marius. Thank you for that. So his question is, um, should, we, should we be pursuing an ecumenical church and, and a united um, church? And then speaking also of your experience within a Norwegian church, which is a, a rather high church, and then a Pentecostal friend going to this church and finding the things that you have in common, but also the differences. Um, ecumenicalism and the, um, the move towards and the desire towards um, oneness, I guess. Um, goodness, we have these words like unity and oneness, and I think it matters a lot what we're talking about when we talk about those things. Um, I think that, that different denominations can be a very beautiful thing and can be a God-honoring thing, can be something that um, reflects the diversity of his people and the diversity of cultures, of personalities, of different times and places and different people seeking in their own way to be faithful to what they understood to be true, all within the um, constraints of the holiness of God and, and the love of God, the, that pursuing that which is um, true to Bible teaches and the things that we can share together. I think the pursuit of something that we have in common and the common ground is very important. So therefore, the creeds that we can all say together um, from different backgrounds um, across, across a, a widespread of, of people and of congregations, denominations. I think these are things that bind us together and remind us of the things that we share, the things that we hold together. And in that sense, I am a, an ecumenical. Um, I want to draw together and to emphasize the things that we share rather than the things that we have that are different. There's also a tendency to cover over 
and de-emphasize things that are distinctive, that are important, and I think should be allowed to be distinct and to remain distinct. Um, and so in that sense, I don't want to just sort of lump us all together and sort of come underneath a, a certain umbrella of um, sort of having to, to affirm and embrace um, all of those unique things, the, the different things, the things that actually do make a difference to me in my understanding and reading of the Bible. And they make a difference to you in your understanding of the re and reading of the Bible. And we don't share this understanding in common. But we do share something that's deeper. And let's focus on that deeper thing. But if we're trying to say that the, the things that are um, convictions that we hold that are, are different from each other, and if we're trying to say that those are not important, I think that there's a way to be able to find that common ground and to find truly Bible-believing um, people who are looking to the Lord for their salvation and for, um, for their ultimate hope. Um, that those that we can share a lot in common with them without having to say and pursue a sameness. Okay. Maybe one more question. Maybe one more. Thank you for um, very thoughtful and at times moving uh, lecture. I think that if we weren't moved by these issues, there would mm. be something wrong. And I can't help feeling that if we were able to grasp and respond to what you've been talking about, that it would change the world. Mm. But my, my question uh, concerns something related to that, and that's an observation that the slide that you put up, most of the, uh, of the churches and the standings, most of those were instigated by men. Mm. I wonder whether there's a gendered issue here, mm. because love and forgiveness in particular can be used as a cover by, particularly by men with power in yeah. churches, Yeah. distortion of the truth. Um, and I know you, I think you touched on this, particularly when you were talking about the holiness of God mm. and where repentance begins. So yes. you, and I think you did address it, but I, I just wonder whether it's worth mm, Thank you, up. yes. Yes, thank you. That's, that's very helpful and, yeah, insightful. Um, was Was pointing out that on the slide that showed a lot of the different scandals that have rocked the church. And these, actually I say a lot, but a few of the many scandals that have rocked the church um, in recent years, that a lot of them were instigated by men, and particularly um, people, men that were in authority, positions of authority, who misused that hunger for love and that hunger for um, unity and being accepted and all of those things. How devastatingly sad to acknowledge that yes, there, there, that is something that it seems to be a mark of a lot of these scandals. And I, I think, I mean, mo all of those that I had up there and most of the ones that I've heard about in recent years have been men in 
places of authority and leadership who have a hidden life that has really come out after a period of time. But it's also, I think each of those situations was a particular person on a high place of authority and power who fell from a pedestal, who fell from that position of authority. But there's also a lot to be said for um, the people who were part of covering it up through the years, the people who knew and who said nothing, the people who silenced the victims um, or who um, were a part of um, sort of downplaying and, and even shaming. And in that, I think there will be men and women who are at fault and who are a part of that, um, that which is so devastating to have to acknowledge before the watching world and so devastatingly disappointing me as a Christian who longs for and strives for this, this purity of the church, this, this sort of unity and over and over headlines hit. Um, hit me of of um, of yet another fall from fall from grace or fall from that place. Um, I think that there is great need for conversations around this and a great need for accountability. Great need for men and women to put themselves in places of working together towards creating a place in which there can be a, accountability, fellow, um, fellow Christians who are going to hold us to a standard that Christ holds us to and that the world holds us to, and people who are in positions of being able to call others out who have failed and to be able to deal with that. I was reading about um, the sole survivor um, guy in the Church of England having to deal with this, this situation. And one of the things that moved me and impressed me was how the, the Church of England was handling that and bringing things to the light. I don't know the whole story. I haven't. But I think it's very important that when we fail, we take it seriously and we hold ourselves to the standard that the rest of the world would hold ourselves to, that we... Um, we don't cover it up because we're trying to keep the image of the church or the image of what it means to be a Christian, that we confess that which has been happening and that before the watching world, we seek to make restitution. We seek to, um, to um, enact church discipline, that we seek to do these things that, yes, they make front page news, but they can also, in a devastating sort of way, be part of what the watching world is also seeing as we deal with our messiness and our brokenness. Um, because I am not in a position of great power or of great ability to, um, to fall from grace, but I sin every day and have to come to the Lord in repentance and ask for his forgiveness. And I have to ask for people around me to help me, to help me recognize the things that are the seeds of something more um, and to live in the light of being called to a, a wholehearted following of him. And that's only possible if we're humble enough to, um, 
to start small and to get it on every level of, of, of leadership as well as on every level of just fellow brothers and sisters together. And I, I think we need to be held to that standard. It's right to be held to that standard. And it's right to be devastated by every single one of those situations. I would love to hear, Philip, what you have to say, more on what you have to say. And there's so many of you that I would love to hear your experiences and to hear your thoughts um, on it. But let's close down the... <laughs> you'll, you'll stay. I will stay. I will stay. Yeah. And in the coming days and weeks, because I feel also deeply convicted by this. And this, this little book I've read every year for probably the last, 20 some years. So I've read it many times and every time I'm convicted almost to tears how much I and how much I have to learn and to grow. Thank you everyone. Thanks for your patience and your time.